In Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, the sixth commandment reads, You shall not murder. I want to begin this morning with a poem that was written by Turkey. When I was a young turkey, new to the coop, my big brother Mike took me out on the stoop. Then he sat me down and he spoke real slow, and he told me there was something that I really had to know. His look and his tone I will always remember when he told me of the horrors of Black November. Come about August, now listen to me, each day you'll get six meals instead of just three. And soon you'll be thick where once you were thin, and you'll grow a big rubbery thing under your chin. And then one morning, when you're warm in your bed, in will burst the farmer's wife and hack off your head. Then she'll pluck out your feathers so you're bald and pink, and scoop out your insides and leave you lying in the sink. And then comes the worst part, he said not bluffing. She'll spread your cheeks and pack your rear end with stuffing. <laughs> well, the rest of his words were too grim to repeat. I sat on the stoop like a winged piece of meat. I decided on the spot that to avoid being cooked, I'd have to lay low and remain overlooked. I began a new diet of nuts and granola, high roughage salads and juice and diet cola. And as they ate pastries, chocolates, and crepes, I stayed in my room doing Jane Fonda tapes. <laughs> I maintained my weight of two pounds and a half and tried not to notice when the bigger birds laughed. But t'was I who was laughing under my breath as they chomped and they chewed ever closer to death. And sure enough, when Black November rolled around, I was the last turkey left in the entire compound. So now I'm a pet in the farmer, farmer's wife's lap. I haven't a worry, so I eat and I nap. She held me today while sewing and humming and smiled at me and said, Christmas is coming. <laughs> Thanksgiving and Christmas are not a turkey's favorite time of the year, trust me. I would imagine on the Sunday after Thanksgiving, there are quite a few turkey killers in the crowd this morning. Even if you didn't wield the knife personally, the enjoyment you derived after the fact made you an accessory, no doubt about it. The Bible says you shall not murder, and you have taken the life of an innocent turkey. What do you think of yourself? But here's the good news. The sixth commandment does not apply to turkeys. Rest assured, you shall not murder or you shall not kill, as it says in the old King James, has nothing to do with animals. Actually, in Genesis chapter 9, God sanctions the killing of turkeys and cows and deer and hogs and fish and goats and rabbits and squirrels and rattlesnakes and I suppose in some parts of the world, even dogs and cats. For God told Noah, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. After the global flood of Noah's day, God added meat to man's diet. And boy, am I glad. If you're a vegetarian, that's fine. But I love a good steak. And if you choose to be a veg vegetarian, certainly don't do so for religious reasons. 
For God has placed no sanctions on the killing of animals for food. As a matter of fact, I've heard that the word vegetarian is actually an old Hebrew word that means person who can't hunt. <laughs> Understand the sixth commandment is not a prohibition against all kinds of killing. Rather, it's a prohibition against murder, and there is a difference. It's been said all murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. There are forms of killing that God condones. I've mentioned the slaughtering of an animal for food. This is a biblically justified killing. Self-defense is another example of killing that's not murder. If someone breaks into my house with the intent of harming my family, I have a responsibility to defend myself and to defend my loved ones. Shooting the perpetrator shows love to my family, and it probably even shows love to the criminal. I've helped him to avoid committing a serious crime. Don't misunderstand Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, he tells us, But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Remember that 90% of the population is right-handed. And Jesus specifically talks about a slap on your right cheek. Now, if I'm going to slap your right cheek with my right hand, then it's probably going to take the back of my hand to do it. And of course, the back of the hand slap was never seen as a physical assault. Rather, it was a means of giving personal insult. Jesus is telling us not to let words and insults harm us. Let them roll off your back. Don't take them personally. Don't retaliate. But he certainly isn't suggesting that we shouldn't defend ourselves from physical attack. Romans 13 verse 4 tells us why government exists. It does so to protect its citizens and to promote justice. He speaks of the police when he says, For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. A policeman is on the front lines. He has to make split-second decisions. He has a tough job. He is God's minister to defend the people, God says. Another form of killing that's not murder is capital punishment. The law of Moses mentioned nearly 18 crimes to which God assigned the death penalty. Capital punishment was first instituted by God in Genesis chapter 9 verse 6. <coughs> there he says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Here's the basic principle behind the idea of government. If you take a life, your life should be taken. And it's the government's job to enforce that penalty. In America today, 64% of people favor the death penalty. But I found it interesting that just 62% view it as a deterrent. Well, let me assure you, it is a deterrent to the guy who gets executed. Another form of killing that's not murder is just warfare. Trust me, war is horrible and should be fought only to avoid greater horrors and as a last resort. But there are occasions when war is needed to check the advance of tyrants with evil ambitions. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 8 tells us there is a time of war and a time of peace. Philip Ryken writes, Christians have long believed that a war is just only if it is waged by a legitimate government for a worthy cause with force proportional to the attack, 
against men who are soldiers, not civilians, and when all other means of resolution have failed. But if those conditions are met, well, then war is justified. My point is, is that not all killing is murder and prohibit, prohibited by this commandment. Actually, the Hebrew word that's translated murder is the word ratzak, a word that's never used of military or legal or in a military sense or in a legal sense. There are other Hebrew words that are used to denote the execution of a death sentence or a soldier killing in combat or even a hunter who kills for food. Rather, the word rasak is reserved for murder, voluntary and involuntary manslaughter, a killing that results from rage or recklessness. As a matter of fact, the old King James rendering of this verse, you shall not kill, is really incomplete. The better translation is you shall not murder. The sixth commandment forbids the premeditated taking of an innocent life. It prohibits us from seeking to harm a person out of anger or out of personal revenge or out of selfish gain. It invokes a deep respect for human life. It requires us to be truly pro-life. Often when we use this term pro-life, it's in the context of unborn life. But God wants us to be pro-life in our approach to all human life. Unborn, newborn, well-worn. We need to be pro-life. He wants us to be pro-life in our interaction with our kids and with our friends and with our co-workers and with our aging parents and grandparents and even with our enemies. The sixth commandment advocates a deep respect for human life in general. It's based on the belief that unlike plants and animals, human life was created in God's image. Human life is special and sacred. And thus to harm or kill a human being, it's literally to launch an attack on God himself. It's to deface the image of God. Now granted, man's sin has clouded God's image. But in every human, God's reflection is nonetheless there. Our ability to make choices. Our ability to love. Our ability to relate spiritually. To sense right from wrong are all traits that resemble our Creator. Look close enough and you'll find a sticker on every human being. It doesn't say made in China or made in America. Rather, it says made by God. John Calvin once wrote, Our neighbor bears the image of God. To use him, abuse or misuse him, is to do violence to the person of God who images himself in every human soul. To see the image of God in every man is to truly be pro-life. As we've mentioned throughout our study on the Ten Commandments, each of God's top ten represents a non-negotiable for our lives. A principle where we should not budge. Each commandment is a conviction that we need to decide on in advance. And here is the sixth non-negotiable for you and me. Each of us needs to be vigorously and comprehensively pro-life. As Christians, we need to see other people as if we were gazing at the image of God. We need to treat each other as sacred. We need to never harm a human being unlawfully. I've mentioned a few things that the sixth commandment does not forbid, but what is prohibited by these words, you shall not murder? Well, for starters, there's homicide. 
In the year 2002, in the state of Georgia, 600 people were victims of homicide. Nationwide, 16,000 people are murdered annually. That's one homicide every 30 minutes. I read where there are 2 million Americans alive today who will one day be murdered. I thought it was interesting that one-third of all homicides are committed by family members, half by acquaintances, and 17% by strangers. In other words, most homicides are caused by arguments with people we know, even people we love. Today we live in a culture that glamorizes violence and murder. From gangster rap to violent movies and video games. In fact, according to the American Psychological Association, by the time an average child finishes elementary school, he or she will have watched 8,000 televised murders and 100,000 acts of on-screen violence. I read an alarming analysis by a retired military psychologist named David Grossman. He points out that kids today who play violent video games are being subjected to the same conditioning and desensitization methods that the army uses to train soldiers for combat and to help them overcome their natural aversion to warfare. Our culture today is training kids to be killers. And the Columbine High School tragedy is just one result. A pro-life parent doesn't just oppose abortion, but they monitor the exposure their kids have to violent and worldly influences. The Sixth Commandment not only includes homicide, but it also forbids suicide. No matter how hopeless life might seem, it's wrong for a person to destroy their own life. In the year 2002, America saw 31,000 suicides, nearly twice as many suicides as homicides. Suicide is the third leading cause of death for people ages 15 to 24. In case you've had a loved one who's taken their own life, let me say that suicide is not the unpardonable sin. When a believer in Jesus becomes so distraught that he or she despairs of life, I'm certain that God meets them on the other side with mercy and shows pity. But suicide is a sin nonetheless. Only God has the right to take a life. And this includes physician-assisted suicide. Terminating treatment is one thing, but terminating life is another. God alone has the authority over life and death. Homicide and suicide are violations of the Sixth Commandment, as is abortion. Each year in America, there are 16,000 homicides. There are 31,000 suicides, but there are 900,000 aborticides. A homicide takes place every 30 minutes. An abortion occurs every 30 seconds in our country. Since the legalization of abortion in America 40 years ago, 40 million innocent human beings have been murdered. Understand that if you're traveling overseas, the odds of being killed by terrorists is 1 in 650,000. If you walk down the streets of downtown Baltimore, the odds of being killed are 1 in 4,000. But if you're an unborn baby in America, you have a 1 in 3.3 chance of being aborted. The womb of an American woman is the most risky place to be on the planet. And don't say abortion is needed to ensure that every child will be loved and properly nurtured. 
Since the legalization of abortion, child abuse has risen 400%. And of course, every time we bring up the subject of abortion, someone always talks about the cases of rape and incest, or what about if the mother's life is in danger? And I believe those cases are cases that necessitate special consideration, no doubt about it. But realize, less than 1% of all abortions in America involve those kinds of circumstances. Let's deal with abortion as a means of birth control. Then we can deal compassionately on these other issues. Hey, in 1999, 50% of all abortion were not the woman's first. That means that over half of the women who terminated the life of their child did so for at least a second time. Guys, the Bible is clear. Human life begins in the mother's womb. Listen to David's prayer in Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written. The days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. It's been said, many children are unplanned by their parents, but understand the Bible teaches that no child is unplanned by God. It's a violation of the sixth commandment to take the life of an unborn child simply because that child poses an inconvenience or a burden to his parents. But to be pro-life involves far more than just the conviction that a pre-born child is worthy of protection and an opportunity to live. Relatively speaking, that's an easier conclusion to draw than to confer the same rights on the boss who's determined to make you miserable. Or the co-worker who's out to take your job. Or the neighbor who's bent on causing you problems. Or the competitor who continues to play dirty. If I'm truly pro-life, I'll not only respect the life of an innocent baby, but I'll also respect the life of the not-so-innocent adults around me. I will see in them the image of God, the image of God who loves them and who made them and created them. I'll treat everyone with a God-granted dignity and respect and love if I'm truly pro-life. Here's a non-negotiable. Let's be pro-life in the truest and fullest sense of the word. As I said, let's turn, turn with me over to Matthew chapter 5. For it's here that Jesus challenges us to have a pro-life perspective toward the postborn. He says, beginning in verse 21, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, and here he quotes the sixth commandment, Exodus chapter 20, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause, shall be in danger of the judgment. Boy, Jesus just ups the ante, doesn't he? And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. 
Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hands you over to the officer, and you are thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Understand, the Pharisees of Jesus' day were a very self-righteous bunch. In fact, they read the Sixth Commandment in Exodus, and they sat back smugly and proudly. Oh, their hands had never dripped with innocent blood. They were proud that they were men who had never murdered anyone. Likewise, there are folks here this morning who are proud of the fact that they've never pulled the trigger on a revolver. You're sitting here, you're thinking, I've never plunged a knife into someone's chest. I've never laced a drink with arsenic. And most of us have never committed murder. Or have we? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus confronts us with a startling truth. In our heart of hearts, there lurks the potential for an anger that given the right set of circumstances can explode into murder. In most of us, that anger stays buried beneath the weight of social restraint. It's pinned under the upbringing that we once had that taught us respect for human life. It's restrained, perhaps, by the fear of punishment. Thankfully, in most people, the seed never turns into a deed. But even though the seed of anger is suppressed, guys, it is there nonetheless. It is there. And here is the point that Jesus is making. In a sense, the seed and the deed are one. Certainly the consequences are different. Nobody nobody may ever know about the seed of anger brewing in your heart, whereas the deed will get you the electric chair. Yes, the seed and the deed are different in degree, but in terms of nature and essence, they're the same. You see, at the core of every human being, there's not much difference between the law-abiding citizen and the person who sees with anger and hatred, the outright serial killer. In other words, there's a little bit of Timothy McVeigh in all of us. Once there was a boy who was doing a history report for school, and he asked his father, Dad, how do wars begin? And the father answered, well, son, take World War II, for example. It started when Germany invaded Belgium. About that time, the mother had entered the room, and she was putting some things back in their place. And that's when she interrupted the conversation. She said, why don't you tell him the truth? It began because someone was murdered. Well, the father snapped back, are you answering this question or am I? The wife got mad, and she stomped out of the room, and she slammed the door behind her. And when the awkward silence broke... That's when the little boy said, Dad, you don't have to tell me anymore. Now I know. (laughs) Jesus looks past the fruit and he examines the root. He looks at the sin of anger. When was the last time you fired off some verbal bullets at your wife or kids? Have you assassinated the character of a co-worker? In your mind's eye, have you ever run a fellow motorist off the road? Or plowed into him from behind? Once there was a pastor out playing golf. I don't know who this pastor was. But (laughs) the score was tied. When the pastor teed it high, he took a swing and whiff. He missed the ball completely. He swung again. And again he whiffed. He whiffed three times until he finally hit the ball in the bushes. 
The pastor was mad. He was livid. He was boiling on the inside, and yet somehow he never said a word. Later, one of his golfing buddies made the comment, Pastor, that was the most profane silence I've ever heard. <laughs> Have you ever been guilty of a profane silence or a smoldering hatred? Have you ever launched a verbal assault or been guilty of a cold-blooded put-down? We're appalled at the gangster who kills the storekeeper for a piddly amount of cash. But in our minds, have we knocked off a fellow church member or maybe even a friend for something just as piddly? Is there a smoking gun in the hand of our hearts? 1 John 3 verse 15 warns us, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus defines the kind of anger that he's describing as a causeless anger. He says, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause. Understand, there is a proper anger. You can get angry for the right reason. In Mark chapter 3, for example, the Pharisees cared more about their traditions than the man with the withered hand. Jesus healed the man, but first he looked around at the Pharisees with anger. Jesus became angry again when he drove the money changers from the temple. It made him mad that the priests were making a buck off God. Paul says to us in Ephesians chapter 4, Be angry and do not sin. And Jesus was the master at that. He was able to balance that. He often became angry, but always for the right reasons. Aristotle once said, Anyone can become angry. But to be angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time, for the right reason, and in the right way, that is not easy. When we get angry, it's usually because we're not getting things our way. Our anger is sparked by a selfish concern rather than a godly concern. Or a certain amount of anger is justified, but we take it too far. Often our reaction exceeds the infraction. This often happens with our dealings with our kids. Jesus is speaking here of an anger that exceeds biblical bounds. When I think murderous thoughts toward a person God loves, I am not being pro-life. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus mentions three degrees or levels of unrighteous anger. First, there's a suppressed anger. Second, there's an explosive anger. And third, there's a premeditated anger. You see, unrighteous anger begins as an annoyance. And then it intensifies into an explosion. And then it turns into an intentional meanness. June 9th, 1980. It was a steamy hot night in Miami Beach. On that night, the body of Judy Bucknell was found murdered in her apartment. The murderer stabbed Judy seven times. A few weeks later, Judy's former boyfriend was apprehended and charged with the murder. And the murder, it turns out, was the result of a disagreement that had turned deadly. Well, before his arrest, the killer had written down a description of his anger. His inability to get it under control, he said, It starts off as a drip, a small puddle that's easily mopped up so you ignore it. The next time, you've got a trickle and so forth until pretty soon you're toting buckets. You're wondering, how far you, you're, wondering, you're wondering how you let it go so far, and if you can ever control it again. It's the graduality of it that gets you. By the time you realize what's happening, it's too late. 
It's a strange emotion, this thing called hatred. You see, anger comes in different octane levels, three degrees of intensity. First, there's a suppressed anger. Warren Wiersbe defines the word translated anger as a settled anger, a malice that's nursed inward. It's a simmering, smolding anger. It sits under the surface of our lives and just sort of boils and bubbles. When it raises its ugly head from time to time, we push it down, but it's always there. This is the kind of anger that causes us to rehearse mean things that we'd like to say. It causes us to think and plot how we might retaliate. We enjoy playing out the confrontation in our minds. Frederick Beckner, he writes, Of the seven deadly sins, anger is the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll your tongue over the prospects of bitter confrontations yet to come, in many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. And it's true. Anger is an acid that harms more where it's stored than where it's poured. One man confessed, when I suppress my anger, my stomach keeps score. <coughs> a Duke University study shows that suppressed anger produces a death rate two to five times higher than does high blood pressure or even smoking. It's been said hate is a prolonged form of suicide. Guys, suppressed anger needs to be dealt with or it will lead to an explosive anger. The word raka was a slang term in the Aramaic language that Matthew carries over into the Greek to retain its initial punch. Raka. That just sounds ugly, doesn't it? Literally, the word means empty-headed. It was a derogatory term, laced with contempt. It was the equivalent of idiot, nimwit, numbskull, you turkey, you twit, you yo-yo brain. Not that I ever use these terms or anything, but <laughs> for some reason they just come to mind quickly. It's the type of term used in an angry outburst. It's the word that comes to mind when someone cuts you off in traffic or when your spouse bounces a check. It's the word that comes up when you're angry and when you have to fight to choke it back down. It's the word that you don't plan to use. It just sort of slips from your lips. You see, explosive anger is like a volcano. Anger rumbles on the inside. It's suppressed. But it rumbles for weeks on end before finally the mountaintop blows and it spews out hot lava. Raka, lava. They're similar. It reminds me of the husband who told his marriage counselor, when I lose my temper, it's only for a minute. And that's when the counselor put it in perspective. And so does the hydrogen bomb. But think of the damage that it does. Jesus says the man who explodes in anger is in danger of the council or the Sanhedrin. In other words, he's in line for a stiff rebuke. There's an old Chinese proverb that says it this way. If you are patient in one moment of anger, you will escape 100 days of sorrow. And Jesus speaks of another type of anger, a premeditated anger. In contrast to the word raka, 
the word fool implies more than just a reactionary rub. It speaks of a deliberate assault, a calculated jab. To call a person a fool was to intentionally attack that person's character. The Greek word translated fool is the word moros, from which we get our word moron. To call a person a fool was to launch a hateful character assassination. It was to engage in premeditated slander, the kind of anger that was pre-planned, the kind of anger that's born to make somebody pay. Reminds me of the woman who was bitten by a dog. And she was told by her doctor that she had rabies. And the news devastated the lady. She reached in her purse. She pulled out a piece of paper. She started writing down vigorously, scribbling on the pad. And it dawned on the doctor that this woman had the wrong idea. He said, ma'am, please understand, you don't need to write your last will and testament. There's medicine for this. We can treat rabies these days. And, and that's when the woman answered, no, this isn't my will. I'm just writing down a list of people I want to bite. This is the person who has some premeditated anger. Notice Jesus warns this person that this kind of anger puts you in danger of hellfire, he says. Now, he doesn't say that you automatically are going to go to hell. But he does say that if, if a pre-planned malice lingers in my heart, I'm certainly in danger of going there. Earlier I, read, earlier I read the first line of 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, but let me finish the verse for you. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Christians will get angry. Certainly we will. We'll suppress our anger, and at times that anger will explode. But if God's love abides in you, you'll want to respond in love. You'll want to get over that anger. You'll want to exchange good for bad, and love for hate. Jesus is saying that a person who is intent and determined on hurting someone else has a giant question mark over the legitimacy of their relationship with God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is telling us that if we really want to be pro-life and keep the sixth commandment, it begins not with our hands, but with our hearts. Here's the challenge that we should consider this morning. How can I adore God and abhor the person who bears His image? How can I love Jesus with a sincere love if I hate the object of His love and despise those people that He came to save? Here is the non-negotiable for my life. Am I going to love people the way Jesus loves them? Am I going to treat people with dignity and see them the way that Jesus sees them? Once there was a rabbi who was walking home from the synagogue. He was feeling very pompous and proud of his religious devotion. When suddenly a poor beggar got in his way. And the rabbi went off in a rage. And he shouted at the beggar, You raka! How ugly you are! Are all the men of your town as ugly as you are? And that's when the beggar replied, That I do not know. But go and tell the maker who created me how ugly is the creature he has made. Hey, when we learn to see people as God sees them, as special and sacred, we'll become less likely to get angry at them. We'll begin to grow a longer fuse. Did you hear of the airplane pilot who discovered a mole 
on board his plane. The animal had slipped into the fuselage and the pilot was afraid that he might gnaw through the wires. And of course, this could cause serious damage to the plane. If the mold chewed on the wrong wire, it could disable the plane. The airplane could crash. And the pilot was wondering what in the world should he do when suddenly he remembered that a mole is not designed for high altitudes. A mole lives his whole life underground. So the pilot turned the plane upwards and he started to climb. Higher and higher he went until finally the mole could no longer stand the higher altitudes and he died. And here's the moral to the story. The more we take the high road, the more we rise to God's perspective, the sooner our anger and our pride and our selfishness will die. Here's the truth that's difficult for us to admit. There is a murderer in the room today, and he's seated in your section. In fact, he's seated on your row. In fact, he may be seated in your seat. CSI Heaven has already combed the crime scene. (laughs) And has done all the forensic tests. And has made a determination. The murderer is behind this pulpit. Sadly, I'm not always as pro-life in my approach to people as I need to be. Rather than see people as eternal beings made in the image of God, made for the glory of God, infinitely loved by God, at times I see people as annoyances and interruptions and burdens and even roadblocks to my selfish plans. I've been pro-me, not pro-life. To some degree or another, we're all guilty of breaking this sixth commandment. Let me close with five attitudes that Jesus provides for us here in the Sermon on the Mount that will help us cultivate a stronger pro-life perspective. First, and I'm going to go through them quickly, is the attitude of submission. Notice verse 23. If you bring your gift to the altar, notice where this person is. They're at the altar. They spend time there. They have surrendered their life to God. There is a gift for God in their hand. They want to please God. The only question is how. We need to have an attitude of submission before God. The second attitude is concern. Notice, and there remember that your brother has something against you. You see, at the altar, this person recalls his offended brother. Obviously, he's thinking about people other than himself. He cares about other people. God has put his love in his heart. And he wants to live out that love. And he disputes with other people. He wants to clear up. There's the attitude of concern. Third is the attitude of humility. Notice he says, remember that your brother has something against you. In other words, don't remember what your brother did to you. Focus on what you did to your brother. Hey, I've discovered that every squabble takes two to tango. None of us are perfect. Before we can expect the person on the other side of the conflict to admit their sin, we need to admit our own. Take responsibility for your own actions. Confess your sin. Seek reconciliation. And then the fourth pro-life attitude is initiative. Leave your gift there, he says, before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother. You go to the person that you've offended. 
You make the first move. Rather than draw lines in the sand, you'll be willing to make an effort to resolve the dispute. It's been said, take a lesson from the mosquito. She never waits for an opening. She always makes one. Life is too short to spend it harboring a grudge. And finally, note the attitude of immediacy. He says, agree with your adversary quickly. For the longer you let an anger smolder, the more likely it is to flame up. A forest fire starts out as a small blaze that could have been easily extinguished if someone had just acted sooner. Ephesians 4 verse 23 tells us, Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Go to bed angry and you'll sleep all night with the devil. Don't put off until tomorrow what you can do today. Hey, here is a great way that we can be pro-life. When it comes to an uncaused anger, be submissive to God. Care about other people. Accept responsibility for your part in the problem. Take the initiative to reconcile and then act quickly to resolve any disputes or misunderstandings. Let me close with a true story. An encounter I had one night with a burly bartender, a roughneck bouncer. I was witnessing to this guy when I told him that Jesus loved him. And there was nothing that he had done that God couldn't forgive. And that's when he looked up at me with a tear rolling down his cheek and he asked, What about murder? What if I've taken another person's life? Will God forgive me for murder? And I told him, absolutely. In fact, we're all guilty of murder because it was my sin and it was your sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. Hey, when you think about it, if God forgives sin at all, He certainly forgives the sin of murder. This means that if you've killed a man in cold blood, God will forgive you. Or if you've aborted a baby, God will forgive you. Or if you've paid for that procedure, God will forgive you. Or if you've assassinated a good man's character, God will forgive you. Or if you've sliced and diced your wife and kids up with hurtful and hateful words, God will forgive you. Or if you've crushed your kids with your anger, God will forgive that too. Or if you've shot down a few fellow motorists on the road with a look that will kill, God will forgive you. And if you've been torturing a friend for years with your unwillingness to forgive and forget, God will still forgive you. There is forgiveness for you. If you'll forgive others, God will forgive you. Guys, it's time we repented of our anger and of our coldness. It's time we loved other people the way Jesus has loved us. Let's treat people with the dignity and with the respect that God bestows on all men. Hey, let's take this sixth commandment and let's keep it. And let's be truly and fully pro-life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these ten non-negotiables. These ten stands that we need to take. These ten decisions that we need to to confirm in advance that, that we're going to have only one God.
that we're going to worship you the right way. That we're going to watch our words and make sure they always honor you. That we're going to rest with you one day in seven. That we're going to be respectful kids and that we're going to raise respectful kids. And then today, that we're going to be pro-life. Not just for the unborn, but for the post-born. Not just for the innocent babies, but for the not-so-innocent people around us who aggravate us and who attack us and who say bad things about us, that we're going to be pro-life toward them too. That we're going to see people as sacred, as special, as created in your image. And that we're going to treat people with the dignity and with the respect that you've bestowed upon them. Help us, Lord, to, to make this conviction real in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to take a stand and make this decision in advance before we face those crazy drivers tomorrow. Help us, Lord, to decide in advance that we're going to be pro-life toward the people that you've surrounded us with, toward the life that you've given them. We love you, Lord. We thank you for loving us and being so patient with us, Lord. And we ask that you work in our hearts afresh this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.